This is hell. Manufacturing descent since 1996. This is hell. Prepare yourself to never think of 20th century Europe the same again. I mean, we know the Soviet Union fell because socialism doesn't work. None of those utopian plans or emancipation from the exploitation of capitalism, none of that ever works. They all lead to totalitarianism just like it did in the Soviet Union. And while socialism clearly destroyed the Soviet Union, we also know what took down Nazi Germany was a singular madman, a lunatic. But what if none of that is actually history, only memories that obfuscate reality. What if it wasn't socialism that was the cause of the Soviet Union's demise? What if it wasn't socialism at all, but dictatorship that took down the Soviet Union? Stalin's dictatorship, that was the cause in reality, not socialism. What if the reason that the Russian Revolution didn't succeed is because the left outside of Russia wouldn't come to the revolution's support? And what if socialism didn't take down the Soviet Union? Stalin did, while Hitler didn't destroy Germany and much of Europe, a feverish pursuit of capitalism did. What if all the failures of emancipatory revolution are caused more by a lack of support from the left worldwide, internationally, than they are thwarted by the violence of the right? What if the history of Europe in the 20th century is a constant class war by the wealthy against the rest of us in an attempt to eliminate any discussion of class? So the elite can continue to dominate through the market. What if by the end of today's show you consider the history of Europe in the last century completely differently than you do right now? We'll get a new perspective on history in a few minutes when we will have the return of historian Raquel Varela, author of the new book, A People's History of Europe from World War I to Today. Raquel is a professor of, at the U- new University of Lisbon and senior visiting professor at the Fluminense Federal University. She is also president of the International Association of Strikes and Social Conflicts and co-editor of its journal. This is Raquel's second appearance on This Is Hell. Raquel was on back in July of 2019 to discuss her then-just-published book, A People's History of the Portuguese Revolution on the Carnation Revolution, and that was named as one of our favorite books to be featured here on This Is Hell in 2019. So you got to go check out that interview with Raquel. Again, her last name is spelled V-A-R-E-L-A. You can search on her name at our website, thisishell.com, and find that interview. And uh, you should definitely check out her book, A People's History of the Portuguese Revolution, because it is fascinating. Also on today's show, I'll tell you how my brother, who passed away last Friday, was a trailblazer for disability rights through no fault of his own. He wasn't even trying. He just existed at a time when people with physical disabilities were treated as if they had mental disorders and were institutionalized away from the so-called normal kids. Think of it as a kind of a people's history of the disabled, or in this case, one people's history, one person's history, I guess. We also got a wonderful email about the show last weekend, right when I needed it most. Jess will tell you what's happening on the rest of this week's shows here on This Is Hell. And, of course, we will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show, live stream, podcast host, Chuck Mertz. It's Tuesday, so today's producer must be Jess Lipka, I think. Jess, how are you? I'm good. It's good to be here. Jesus Christ. So last week, my back goes out, so I can't do the show on Tuesday. The week before... We couldn't do the show on Tuesday because we got 15 inches of snow up here, so we had like <laughs> yeah. two feet. Of, how bad was it down by your house? You get worse snow than we do up here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was it was bad. It seemed similar. How long was your car stuck in the snow? How long did it take you to get it actually shoveled out for like two or three days? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I didn't leave the house for it. For, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I couldn't open up my front door <laughs> two Tuesdays ago. Then you were on the you know, We did a show together three weeks ago, and then the two weeks before that, we didn't do yeah, shows yeah, together. Yeah, yeah. So this is like the... <laughs> Second show in six weeks, so it's very good to see you. So how are you? Good how are you? Doing? Um, I'm good. Yeah, it's uh, it feels like winter might be ending. So I know, right? Two weeks ago, we were completely snowed in, and now it, it seems like it's all over. Yeah. <laughs> Did you see the cat, by the way, when you came in? No, I didn't. Okay, I gotta go feed him. <laughs> More important than any of that, and my confusing relationship with my horrible bad back and my stupid life, Jess. What is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? 
This week's question from hell is, what's the hot fashion trend of spring 2021? What's the hot fashions trend of spring 2021? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing. So thanks to all of you for your support. We do not accept any grant money. We are, don't have any commercials. We're completely commercial-free. And we don't have enough money to actually apply to be a not-for-profit. That's how not-for-profit we are. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio. You can email it to chuck at thisishell.com. But we must have your answer to uh, this week's question from hell by the end of Thursday's show when we are announcing this week's winner, as we do each week following Jeff Dorchin and the moment of truth jess will be sharing more of your answers to this week's question from hell following raquel you are listening to god's favorite radio show prove us wrong this is hell you can email us your thoughts criticism and suggestions to chuck at this is hell.com you can message them to us via facebook you can dm them to us via twitter and if you do we will likely read your writing on air because we get the absolute best guest and topic ideas from you the listeners last Sunday I woke up with the emotional pain of losing my biggest brother weighing heavily on my heart unable to sleep I sat down in front of my desktop computer something I had not done for a week because of the physical pain that was lingering in my back and it kept me from sitting in an upright position for over a week nothing seemed right I was still in shocked disbelief at my brother's completely unexpected passing and to be honest I really wasn't certain if I was going to be able to do any of the shows this week that's when I saw this email from Christopher that gave me some hope Christopher writes dear Chuck and the gang last summer when I first discovered this is hell I would have never guessed I would have been able to learn so much while doing manual labor hung over in 105 degree weather but you guys proved that wrong Chuck, your voice, your moral code, and the breaths of sanity you offer us through your monologues have made this depraved, backwards world we live in just that much more bearable. That said, I would like to offer some tips to make your back pain a little more bearable. While I doubt I have nearly the same level of chronic back pain that you do, I did do have a lot of back pains playing high-impact contact sports. And it was often compounded by growth pains during my significant growth spurts. Seems that I'm capping out at around 6 feet 6 inches tall now, thankfully. The two things I suggest are, one, getting an exercise ball to sit on, even if it's just for short amounts of time. I've had mine for a few months now, and at first it was so difficult and uncomfortable to sit on for any length of time, but it undoubtedly helps with improving posture and core strength. Nothing makes a better seat than air, in my opinion. And two, start trying some yoga. I have also recently picked up a yoga hobby, just doing some YouTube yoga classes, and it's honestly amazing how much better it makes my body feel. More than likely, your back pain is a symptom of problems isolated to not just your back. It's a whole body issue, and yoga can and will help with that. Yoga feels like it just lets your body breathe a sigh of relief. 1110 would recommend, as in rating something 11 out of a scale of 1 to 10. Anyways, thank you again, everyone. I hope you are all staying safe and staying warm in the midst of that storm. Be well. Thanks, Chris. And Chris, are you saying that instead of the exercise ball collecting dust in my basement next to the furnace, I should actually bring it upstairs and use it, and that will help my back more than storing the exercise ball downstairs? Because, Chris, that's crazy. And what is this yoga you speak of? It sounds like some kind of cult, and I'm really not interested in joining your cult, Chris. But seriously, I totally forgot I had an exercise ball in the basement. And yes, you are absolutely correct. Yoga could definitely help. And I have a ton of yoga books, so I'm going to be doing some research this weekend. But more than anything, I appreciate your appreciation for This Is Hell, Chris. Before I read your email, I had absolutely no motivation to do the show this week. All I wanted to do was mourn and grieve for the loss of my brother. 
But after I read just the first few lines of what you wrote, Chris, I remembered how much my brother supported me and the show, how proud he was of what we've done here, and how he would always introduce me to his friends by saying, this is my brother who does that radio show I was telling you about, with a huge smile on his face. He was very politically active in Michigan, and he got a lot of his politically active friends to listen. And suddenly, thanks to Chris's email, I couldn't wait to do the show this week. Because of the pandemic, my family and my brother's many friends cannot get together physically to pay our respects. However, what I can do to show my respect is this, what I'm doing right now, something my brother truly believed in. So again, thanks, Chris. I really, really appreciate that email, even though you didn't even know what I was going through. That's how amazing our listeners are. You can send us your comments on the show, guest or topic suggestions, or any ideas or thoughts that you have to chuck at thisishell.com. And like I said, we'll probably share your thoughts on air with all of our listeners. Live from the United States, where the law is the crime, this is hell. Coming up, we will reconsider the history of Europe in the 20th century. Jess will have some of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, what's the hot fashion trend of spring 2021? What's the hot fashion trend of spring 2021? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can see all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, tweet it to us, email it to us, but we have to have your answer by the end of Thursday's show when we are announcing this week's winner, as we do each and every week. We'll also be, uh, you know, I'll also explain how my brother was a disability rights activist, a pioneer, without really trying. Another end of the world is possible. This is hell. What we know about Europe in the 20th century is not history. It's something else. They're stories we tell ourselves, narratives more based on a fabricated memory than history, returning to help us reconsider Europe in the 20th century from a completely different perspective. Historian Raquel Varela is author of A People's History of Europe from World War I to today. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Raquel. Thank you so much for the invitation uh, again. It's a pleasure to be here. This is Raquel. Again, a little bit around history, yes. past, present, and future. Yeah, I love it. This is uh, Raquel's second uh, appearance on This Is Hell. Raquel was on back in July of 2019 to discuss her then-just-published book, A People's History of the Portuguese Revolution, which we named as one of our favorite books to be featured here on This Is Hell in 2019. And you can find that interview right now by going to thisishell.com and searching on Raquel's last name, Varela, V-A-R-E-L-A. I want to ask you about people's history and the idea of memory and history to begin with. There's a description at the beginning of the book of what a people's history is and what that means. This is your second people's history. For those who may be unfamiliar with people's history or are uncertain how a people's history is different from the more traditional history, which we are taught, how would you describe or define a, a people's history? Because I recently saw an online conversation, a discussion among those who identify as being on the left here in the United States about people's history, with some inquiring as to how they are different from the traditional reading of history. And a phrase that many were using was, instead, instead of history from the victor's or the winner's perspective, it's from the quote-unquote loser's perspective. And that did not sit well with me. How is a people's history different? And is it history from the perspective of those who lost to the powerful? Well, um, that's a very provocative question with this sentence. I do not agree with this view of people's history. I think uh, the people's history, well, first of all, we are uh, all a little bit fathers and sons of our zines, uh, the people's history of USA, which has, of course, inspired us. If we go a little bit uh, before this, we find the social history uh, of uh, especially the historians connected with the British Communist Party in Great Britain or that left the British Communist Party. You think of Hobsbawm, Epi Thompson, etc. 
or the radical left intellectuals of New Left Review. We think about, of course, history from below, Histoire Sociale Française from France. Um, I do believe that uh, people's history, it's uh, uh, the history of the oppressed that have resisted. And that's why I don't call them losers. Sometimes these uh, fights, they uh, were, um, they end up in uh, defeats, but uh, several times they, they end up in victories. Uh, if you think about, um, so for example, if we think about the Stalinist counter-revolution that defeated the Russian revolution together with the foreign invasions, the defeat of German revolution, this is true, but if you think about the impact of the Russian Revolution with a very interesting concept called self-determination from Perry Anderson, a very important, another very important left Marxist or left intellectuals to be more accurate, um, which is after the Russian Revolution, the possibility of a, a, a group, a collective uh, number of people uh, putting in the history, their own project of self-emancipation, um, it was defeated, but at the same time, the level of our influence in history, the, the belows, changed radically after the Russian Revolution. There is a new word after the Russian Revolution, this is Soviet, and an old word, which is Czar. The new word is how it is possible to change the world for the uh, lower classes, for the working class, uh, when they pick up uh, the future in their hands. Then I can pick up examples which are more easily for, um, for the readers to, I think, agree immediately. You think of Nazi resistance uh, in the Second World World. Uh, well, if you think that Second World War is a defeat for everyone because 80 million people died and there is no really a side that uh, won a war where 80 million people died, but the Nazi regime was defeated and the resistance win uh, against the most barbarian project of humanity. Uh, well, if you think about of the impact of the May of 68, of the Portuguese revolution in the 70s, um, all of, or we can go back to this, uh, to other revolutionary process along the 20th century. Uh, I wouldn't say that this is about the losers because it's not about all the people. And it's also not just about the oppressed because there are oppressed in history that don't try to change their condition. The people's history is about the oppressed that try to fight against the oppression in several ways. But so I, I, I'm not sure if I gave the best answer, but I, I always resume it as the, the history of the resistance. That is a spectacular answer to the question. How do you think we view history differently? What how do we misunderstand history when we view the history of World War II as the Allies being victorious, winning that war over fascism? How do we view that war differently when we see that war as a victory when clearly, as you were pointing out, with 80 million people dead, it was a loss for all of humanity? Well, uh, if we look to the Second World War, as a world a war between Nazism and democracy, we fail to comprehend the history because uh, the war was not just about Nazism uh, against democracy and democracy against Nazism. There was another side of the anti-Nazism, uh, which was a revolutionary or resistance approach. If you think about uh, this was majoritary, so there was an anti-capitalist side in the Second World War, which uh, had, uh, uh, um, we are speaking of uh, half million people engaged in the French resistance, even that they were not all revolutionary or anti-capitalist because you also had Catholic sectors in this resistance or other sectors, 
an important part was anti-capitalist as well as in Italy. In Yugoslavia, they won the war without needing, uh, um, without needing uh, a foreign uh, military sector uh, to, uh, to help them. Or if you think about in Greece, uh, where the resistance uh, had control over the majority of the country, although again, not all the resistance was anti-capitalist, but a huge part it was anti-capitalist. So the second thing, if, if we want to look um, to a different approach to history is that we don't understand the second world world as an answer against the Nazism, but as a collective answer of capitalist states against the 29 crisis. The 29 crisis was the way out, the, the Second World War was the way out of the 29 crisis. Even in US, the, the US just uh, left the figures of the 29 crisis when they transform the unemployers in soldiers and the, um, the, the immobilization of productive capacity the factories that were closed into factories of war economy. This was immediate, immediately obviously the war economy in Nazi in Germany in 1933. Uh, it was of course uh, uh, immediately uh, very visible in the forced collectivization of the peasants in uh, US in Ukraine to force them to work in factories toward an industrialization that was based a lot in the uh, in war economy. The war economy was also the war, uh, was also the economy of France later and of England. And the first step, as we know, was given with the defeat of the Spanish Revolution with the Francoist victory. So uh, we have to understand that because after the Second World War, there was this generalized idea that which has a lot to do, of course, with the, with the barbarian uh, situation of the Jewish and the Holocaust, but also with the building of Israel state. There was this idea that uh, Nazism was a result of a crazy guy, Hitler, who managed to control by a massive propaganda an entire country. I believe this is a very mechanicist approach to history and very based on uh, lots of ideology and less empirical research. Because what we see in the Second World World is that in the 30s, most of the countries were prepared to a gigantic uh, imperialist confrontation that could uh, bring, uh, uh, that could uh, stop uh, by national effort the idea of uh, class struggle and social revolutions. Of course, this was much stronger in Germany because in Germany, the communists were stronger, were very near Soviet Union. They had tried the revolution in 1990 and 1923 and the Germany's economic situation was even more degraded than in other countries. So, and the, the other thing is that when we look to the second world world, from the point of view of the people's history, what we see in 1945 is that the, the workers have arms in their hands. Uh, there is in this situation, a revolutionary situation. The state is destroyed uh, in Europe. In most of the countries in Europe, the infrastructures and the state itself is destroyed and the workers are in arms. Of course, the Yalt and Potsdam agreement of dividing the world, the Plan Marshall and the uh, security agreement for Europe um, have managed to stop these revolutions in Europe. They didn't manage to stop the anti-colonial revolutions in other parts of the world that started after the Second World War. But we have to understand, we cannot understand the welfare state. This is one of the main arguments of my book. We cannot understand the welfare state. Again, answering your question of a defeat of a victory. The welfare state is both a victory and a defeated. It's, a def it's defeated because workers could go further in an anti-capitalist pr uh, proposal after the Second World War. If the, probably, we can say this in a very contrafactual way, which is not very, uh, uh, usually most of historians don't like this, what would have happened, but I think we have to 
speculate about this, although we are certain just about what has happened, not about what would have happened, of course. What we do about what would have happened are merely speculations, but speculations based on possibilities and hypotheses that have some scientific um, true, some scientific method. So would be possible for the working class that uh, was transforming soldiers and in armies to pick up the power against capitalism in Europe in 1945. I believe this was a possibility, was not a certainty, and it didn't happen, but it was a possibility. And this, the, the, what I believe it's the stronger argument to prove this is that capitalists had to abdicate for 20 years of unemployment, which is the main, uh, the, the main, uh, um, the main argument for uh, wage control. So in capitalism, you can control wages of workers by dictatorship, forbidding unions and left political parties, workers' parties, or by controlling the uh, 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 army, uh, the industrial army reservoir. I don't know if this is the proper word in English. This is the surplus population that can work and that is always the pressure over the ones that are working and accept to losing their wages because of this pressure. So uh, uh, after the Second World War, for 20 years, the working class had a huge power. They were entitled to uh, good wages, uh, paid holidays and fixed work protected. And this was just possible because it was the mediation and the negotiation for them to give guns, to give uh, up of the guns and of the revolution in Europe. I, uh, one, one of the scenes of um, Novicento, the film from Bertolucci is very interesting because in a certain moment, there is a, a member of the, of the institutional, some, some sector, that goes to a peasant's area where the resistance was very strong and scream them. Now, uh, comrades, we, you have to give me your guns because the war is over. And one of them, the peasants react, the war is over, but capitalism and bosses are not over. We still have the bosses. We have the patron, the, the boss. So I think this confrontation, the Second World War was not just a confrontation between democracy and fascism. Inside the anti-Nazi uh, allies, there was an anti-capitalist side and a capitalist side. The capitalist side uh, uh, won, which allowed them to make this uh, memory of the Second World War that reduces the world to the confrontation of liberal democracy with capitalist state and Nazi dictatorship. And that's where, let's get back to memory here for a second, because I found this really fascinating. When you mentioned Francis Fukuyama and his 1990s idea of the so-called end of history, you write, it is in fact the public consecration of the teleological ideology that man is not the protagonist of his own history, an unhistorical nature, an assured destiny. The future would then be inescapable. In order to bring this ideology to life, a memory of the European past has been built that does not pass through the laboratory of history. History is not memory. What do you mean by history not being memory? Is history more than a retelling of events? Why is it so important to separate history from memory? Well, this is a wonderful question. Uh, I think uh, this is my, uh, let's say, my theoretical differences with postmodernism philosophy and with left liberals. Uh, I believe that we have to separate what happened from what, uh, from the narratives or the memory or the symbolic disputes around the, around the past. History, if we think about nowadays, memory is very important. So uh, all kinds of memories, either personal or state memories or historical memories, they uh, uh, are uh, in, in a comprehensive part of our life. But history is something that already happened and this has happened uh, 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 when we look to the past, we have to look to both to the to the facts, 
to the interpretation of these facts, which is never neutral, but should be objective, and to the comprehension of these facts, how our, our theory allows us to make different interpretations of this. Uh, this uh, is uh, as a, a part that is independent of us. You cannot say that Hitler was a mad guy that drew, drove Germany to a war because this is not history. This is, is an ideological construction. You can say that he was crazy. I mean, a psychiatrist probably would reach this uh, conclusion. If you look to him, he really looks like a crazy guy. But you cannot understand that a country is driven to a massive militarization that ends up in the most barbaric uh, situation of uh, uh, um, massive killing uh, of millions of people just because of a crazy guy. Of course, we know that there was an important industrial Germany bourgeoisie, including a Jewish at the beginning, after, uh, of course, the Nazi party went immediately after the Jewish to expropriate them, etc. But at the beginning of the 30s, it, there was this idea of the German bourgeoisie, of the German big companies, uh, which include, which uh, um, made an important public letter, the industrial letters of Frankfurt to Hitler, giving him support. I, I, if I remember well, there were seven, just one were Jewish, so it was not the majority. But just to say that uh, above all, this was a class answer of the German bourgeoisie to avoiding a social revolution in Germany. This is very important to understand. There is another question. So you cannot say that uh, when the Germany as a state in all upper and middle institutions prepare herself to a process, to a state uh, based on exploitation, forced labor, racism, anti-Semitism has done this because of a crazy guy. So this, uh, uh, we have to separate. Then we can have different interpretations or different comprehensions. Uh, I'm, I'm dividing these two words because to interpret, it's to explain to someone and comprehension is to bring to ourselves and understand it with our theory a little bit, if I may explain it like this. But so history demands all of this from us, but there is, there are uh, obviously a core, um, a core of, of facts which that it's not, um, we cannot use them as we want, like a little bit as postmodern says. And if you look to the postmodern historians nowadays, including the left ones, they focus on narrative, uses of the past, uh, they focus on memory, but uh, what we need, in fact, in my opinion, is to go deeper to them to the evidence, to the empirical and to theoretical and developing concepts to understand the past. Uh, this is much more urgent than uh, the narratives that today we built about the past, although they are very fashionable nowadays, especially in the academies, but this has to do with this uh, new idea uh, the postmodernism idea is a very anti-Marxist idea that you cannot control uh, the present and the future. It's a very anti-historical idea. That's why usually postmodern historians don't study history, they study present narratives. Is the idea that everything is very uh, dependent on a subjective narrative. Uh, and uh, I believe, uh, where, that's why I start with the concept of self-determination of Perry Anderson. I believe that uh, uh, if you look to the Middle Ages, we didn't control anything. Even we had to sleep when the sun was down because there was no light. Uh, the days succeed to the days without almost any control of man. With capitalism, our control over nature has raised so much and the amplification of our material means allow us a huge do, uh, 
a bigger uh, possibility of uh, dominating the nature and dominating history, <laughs> accelerating times. But social revolutions have done this in a much bigger way. So I believe what we have to look now is should be our uh, should be our efforts as historians is uh, to focus on the moments of transformation of change and these are are the moments of revolutions to understand what in what they have in what they have succeeded in what they have failed and to debate the future because this is about the present crisis of socialism and of politics in society nowadays. In my opinion, we, we do not feel on the left intellectuals capable of debating future. Uh, we, are, we live in an eternal present. Uh, and this cannot mobilize people to change because you just change if you are mobilized to a future idea. But how can we debate the future if we don't look to the past properly, mainly to understand huge mistakes that were done in the name of workers, in the name of revolutions, in the name of Marxism. Uh, we have to make huge differentiation, as you were saying at the beginning of your, what about if socialism was not about the defeat of socialism, but Stalinism, which is a deeply anti-socialist uh, um, historical movement. Yeah, that's one of the things I was thinking about when I was reading your book. You see the Soviet Union and the historical narrative, if you will, says that the reason that the Soviet Union fell is because of socialism. Meanwhile, when it comes to Nazi Germany, the reason that Nazi Germany fell is because of a madman, not because of its drive towards, its feverish drive towards an unfettered kind of capitalism. What explains to you? Why do we... Why do we want to demonize socialism, but not demonize Stalin, yet we want to demonize Hitler, but not demonize capitalism? Well, again, I, I think now we have to go to the present and uh, see um, that um, after the 80s and the raising of so-called neoliberalism, which is, in my opinion, the successful restructuring of capitalism after the 70s and the defeat of the revolutionary process both in the 70s in Europe, uh, May of 68, and Portuguese revolution in Southern Europe. And then you had Iran, Nicaragua, and then finally you had Poland and all the uh, revolutions in Eastern countries that uh, end up in, in a, a restoration, in counter-revolutions that have um, restored capitalism in Eastern countries. So, uh, and then you have the market of China opening, uh, bringing uh, the double of the workforce to a huge competition on world scale. So basically this is the main factors that have, uh, have, have given a, a in, incredible hegemony to capitalism in the, mo in the uh, form of neoliberalism, but this is capitalism. It's capitalism in this decay, extremely decay period, in my opinion, based on the raising of, on the transforming private debts in public debts. It's a deeply Keynesian capitalism. Um, and they become extremely hegemonic. And with this hegemony, the left organizations, even the non-left, but let's say progressive organizations or reformist organizations, as typically the unions, have lost their importance and their ability to uh, at least conserve the rights. I don't even say to fight for new ones. So in here, of course, if we want to study, if you want to understand the difference between socialism and uh, Stalinism, uh, you need, uh, I mean, it's not going to be the state universities around the world that are going to do this. You need to have a public, uh, public uh, militant, uh, cultural, progressive sectors that are able to give this dispute because this dispute is about as i said future it's about uh, explaining that um, socialism is about abundance uh, socialism 
is just possible if you have a huge development of productive forces, which was not possible after the uh, civil war in Russia and after the defeat of the German revolution, because the, the Germany, they, all the people in Germany were alphabetized in the end of the 19th century, and is, it was one of the main industrial countries in the world, it is. And Russia was totally devastated. So the, the bureaucratic uh, Stalinist casta that took over the country, took uh, over the small capacity of production and bring to them in a form of appropriation. Uh, it, it was not possible to build socialism when you didn't. There is a so interesting talk between Martov and Trotsky. I, I quote it in a book uh, where he says, I think Martov says to Trotsky, if I remember well, uh, socially now comrade, finally we have socialism, but we don't have cows to feed the children with milk. And Trotsky answered to him, if we don't have cows to feed the children with milk, we don't have socialism. So uh, I think we have a huge socialization of the production around the world. Uh, as we saw in this pandemic, the interindependence of the, pro the, so the production is huge, but we have, a, as we saw in the pandemic, a private appropriation, which is dramatically for millions and millions and millions of people that are not just suffering because they have low wages, they are totally outside of any formal job, of possibility of the democratic right to be fed every day, to have access to soap and water, which became so famous during the pandemic. You have to clean your hands. Yes, half of the world does not have either soap or water together. So uh, the, the, the question of socialism is that there was no other way to fight a pandemic without a planned economy based on democracy. What was used by Western countries in Europe was more neoliberalism, was uh, uh, competition on vaccines, competition on closing borders, competition on products, competition on machines, competitions on, medi on medicines, and uh, uh, restrict the democratic rights of the people. And unfortunately, so many people on the left, if you allowed me, has supported the restrictions of rights, saying it was in the name of a public. Um, a public uh, crisis, and I shall, if you, if you allowed me one second to tell a wonderful story. Uh, um, as far as I know, the only moment where Stalin accepted uh, the reintroducement, when Stalin went to power, he finished the power of um, labor councils, as the book of American historian Kevin Murphy, Revolution and Counter-Revolution, shows very well. This is a wonderful book. I strongly recommend it. You won the exact and Tamara Deutsch Prize. And uh, so he, he forbidden the workers' councils in the uh, Soviet Union in the late 20s. They never, uh, they never were in charge again. In fact, the, the forms of control were not democratic anymore. It was controlled from above with the political police, with vodka distribution for free and other forms of control. And uh, uh, the, the, um, during the siege of Leningrad, which took 900 days, the, the city was sieged by the Nazi army. Stalin allowed, and people did not, could not be fitted. There was a moment where the calories uh, uh, dropped to 500 or something like this. And uh, the only way to avoid cannibalism and that people kill each other in desperate um, was to restore uh, uh, democratic councils in Leningrad. Uh, um, Stalin uh, uh, permitted this. Uh, so uh, the, the only way to uh, avoid that people destroy themselves was to restore a bottom uh, uh, top uh, democracy. So uh, this is for me an extraordinary story. If you want to control a pandemic like this, lockdowns are absolutely 
terrible for all kinds of reasons, lockdown healthy people. This is an amazing neoliberal uh, idea. What you have to do, and I don't care if Trump or Bolsonaro are against lockdowns. I mean, we have to left, there, there's not just Trump and neoliberalism in the world, there are other options. Uh, and I believe the best options would be to have uh, democratic councils in the neighborhoods where people uh, with low risk would continue their lives, would continue working, would continue uh, to have a normal and healthy life and not being crazy uh, locked down at home. But these people would organize in these neighborhoods to, give, to deliver the goods to the older and unhealthy people that needed help. I don't see other way to, to fight such a situation, to give an example of what democracy can do. So I think we never dream to be, to, to, to end this, um, this part of my talk. We, we never dream, we never think about what if, what if uh, we do something out different from neoliberalism and don't accept this as the end of history. I, this is such a fascinating book, and I really enjoy speaking with you. Your answers to, our que to the questions I've asked so far have just been fascinating. But there's something I wanted to ask you about. You write that the USSR had less effective production in the late 1920s than in 1914. There was neither scientific mastery, nor trained staff, nor technology, nor machines to produce much for everyone. The solution would therefore be a revolution in Germany and in the countries where there was development, or the dictatorship of a minority, the party bureaucracy. So how dependent was the Russian Revolution then on international support? And the reason that I ask is, we've just gone through the situation in Brazil with Lula and Dilma and many of the people who supported the Workers' Party there saying that they were not getting the support from the international left when they were trying their emancipatory project, what they saw as an emancipatory project. So can emancipatory projects only succeed with international support and what explains the lack of that support from the left? Well, concerning the, um, concerning the Russian Revolution, it was a little bit as I uh, referred uh, before. I believe that, for example, if you, want to, if, you, if you want socialism, everybody needs to have a proper uh, food, house, time, uh, uh, free time, etc. So there is not socialism. It's not just about food and the house. It's about dream and poetry. Well, there was not even um, uh, machines to uh, work on the land. So, for example, another wonderful book I strongly recommend is "Women on Revolution" from Wendy Goldman, a historian, a North American story historian and for example the ideas of free love and uh, alexander Kontai at the beginning let's building collective cleaning spaces so women are free from washing clothes from their hands all day long but then there was no money to build uh, machines and money is not just about money scientific knowledge uh, is engineers is universities that's why we have to look to germany that's why trotsky and lenin look to Germany since of the beginning of the revolution. The idea of the international revolution of Trotsky was always an idea of three moments. And usually two moments are forgotten uh, by the people that quote him. The first idea was, of course, transforming the bourgeoisie revolution into a socialist one, the democratic revolution into a social revolution, was to um, bring uh, the revolution to the developed countries and bring back the developed countries, revolutionary developed countries to Russia. So built an international and uh, a total revolution in the sense, this is the idea of permanent revolution. These three ideas I, I told. So it's, it's a social, it's international and it's total. Total in a sense that a revolution should deliver feed through, um, should be able to produce by the producers, uh, both food and poetry. 
and uh, this was not possible. The production of the Soviet Union in the late 20s was lower than in 1914. And if you look to the situation in Cuba, for example, uh, it's uh, amazing. I'm, I'm a, a much more, uh, let's say, fan of the Che Guevara uh, approach than on Fidel Castro. Uh, but if you think of uh, Cuba uh, in, um, uh, in the situation of embargo and in the situation of not having means, means of production, uh how this country has uh, survived uh it's 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 really it didn't did well let's not invent it because socialism is not about poverty but um how can you have socialism if you don't have means of production <laughs> it's Raquel, that is, I, I really enjoy speaking with you, and we have only skimmed the very surface of Raquel's book. I have about 54 more questions that I've written for <laughs> Raquel, and we are not going to be able to get them, and it's really, really too bad. Because... I hope one day I can go to Chicago. <laughs> I hope so. I hope so, too. Uh, we are, we're celebrating our 25th anniversary this year, so uh, it would be fantastic if you could celebrate it whenever we're able to celebrate again, because I'm really not too sure when that's going to be. Yeah, We've been hopefully. speaking... Yes, hopefully soon. We've been speaking with historian Raquel Varela. She is author of A People's History of Europe from World War One to Today. This is Raquel's second appearance on This Is Hell. She was on back in July of 2019 to discuss her then-just-published book, A People's History of the Portuguese Revolution. You can hear that interview by going to thisishell.com and searching on Raquel's last name. One last question for you, Raquel, and I'm not sure if you remember or not, but our final question is the question from hell. The question we might hate to ask, you might hate to answer our audience. They may hate your response. And I cannot believe that I'm asking you a question from hell about Fox News, so I want to apologize to begin with. Fox mm-hmm. News has a new one-hour documentary. It's called The Unauthorized History of Socialism that starts with the rise of Nazism as Germany's Nazi party was officially the National Socialist German Workers' Party. In Fox News' version, Germany's Nazis were far-left socialists, not far-right capitalists. How were the Nazis not socialist but capitalist, how concerned were they for workers' rights and working conditions, and how interested were they in the freedom of capital? Oh, I don't have here the figures on my mind, but in my book they are. Um, uh, a quoting, by the way, a wonderful historian, a good friend from uh, U.S., uh, William Pelt, that passed away two years ago, and he wrote uh, More Than the People's History of Modern Europe, it was very, very important in my uh, life as well. So uh, the uh, the number of uh, representation of the unions of the Nazis was less than 5% than on other socialist, communist, Catholic currents among the working class. So the Nazis, um, their representation on working class was left were less than 5%. And even in elections, the majority of the pools, uh, the Nazis won in uh, small villages among the petit bourgeois in some sectors of the working class, but the majority of the working class areas like the Rude, uh, socialists and communists, so- social democrats and communists uh, won. Well, uh, Nazism has built a capitalist uh, private industry, which was not nationalized. So the basic of the Nazism is to uh, enslave millions of people, including Jewish, uh, gypsies, and first in the 30s, leftish. And then each time they occupy the country, bring another million uh, of uh, enslaved, coerced labor, there was not just Auschwitz, there were hundreds of concentration camps that were camps where these people work for free, almost without food, they work until they die. And these camps were organized by the state of Germany to uh, private companies as Bayer, Krupp, uh, Volkswagen, 
they all had to pay fees after the war um, uh, and ask for uh, sorry for uh, their uh, strictly um, cooperation with Nazi uh, Germany. In fact, Nazism is the regime of corporations of Nazi Germany trying to avoid a workers' revolution, a socialist revolution. So I shouldn't trust Fox News for my history lessons? <laughs> no, not at all. At least if you want to be a serious person. <laughs> <laughs> Raquel, thank you so much for being on our show thank again. You. This really is just a pleasure. Thank you so much for thank being on. Thank you so much. All right, take care. And because you were on this week uh, on our Patreon podcast that we do on Friday, we're going to either share one of our past interviews with uh, Howard Zinn or the one interview that we did with William Peltz. So thank you for reminding me of both of their great work. Thank you. Wonderful. Take care. Money is the root of all evil, and capitalism is all about money. So you do the math. This is Hell. This week's question from Hell is, what's the hot fashion trend of spring 2021? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from Hell gets whatever piece of This Is Hell merchandise they want. You can see all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from Hell at our Facebook page, tweet it to us, email it to us, but we have to have the your answer to the question from Hell by the end of Thursday's show when we are announcing this week's winner, as we do each and every week. So, Jess, do you have any more answers to this week's question from Hell? Again, what is the hot fashion trend of spring 2021. Yes, I do. All right. <laughs> Egon S. says, when scientists realize COVID is being transmitted through farts, butt masks, <laughs> Lisa M., uh, an extra 20 pounds, <laughs> Adam A., Trump comb over Merkins for sex workers in red states. That's disgusting. <laughs> Sean M., pants, Pants, that's nice Uh, Andrew P, pajamas Okay Kramer O, uh, baseball cap with outward facing forehead temperature readout Also available in knit and fedora variations for the hipsters Or MAGA red to, quote, own the chuds That's pretty hot That would be really cool (laughs) Um, Barrett M, Billie Eilish hairstyle for (laughs) middle-aged men (laughs) Um, um, Mar G, naked in my bed all right. <laughs> Scott W. Hazmat suits. Nice. And lastly, John K., one of those Red Star communist hats from Amazon. <laughs> yeah, from Amazon. you got to get it from Amazon. It's definitely the place to get that. Don't waste your time at Walmart or Target. You're not going to find it. We'll have more of your answers to this week's question mail on tomorrow's show. And again, we will be announcing the winner at the end of Thursday's show following Jeff Dorch in the Moment of Truth. So at first, my uh, biggest brother who passed away last Friday. At first, he was an accidental disability rights activist at a very, very young age. Later, he would be an advocate for the rights of the disabled, including being a founding member of his local handicapped advisory board, which would become the Isabella County, Michigan Human Rights Committee, of which he was a co-chair and would also work to protect those who are victims of sexual abuse, among many, many other issues. He even worked with the local transportation system in supporting disabled accessibility. But at first, he did not volunteer to be a disabled rights activist. He was conscripted into the movement for disability rights by being born with a disability, a a worse version of the same disability I have, a neurological disorder that causes us to be legally blind, lacking all color vision, poor depth perception, and intense solar sensitivity, which is why you always see me and my brother wearing sunglasses, usually the mirrored aviator style, as they are the darkest, cheap sunglasses you can get. And if you wear sunglasses all of the time, you have to get the cheap ones Because when you're legally blind, sometimes it's very difficult to find your sunglasses. When my brother was five years old, old enough to start kindergarten at the school, four doors away from our home, the elementary school at our corner, a school my parents bought a home close to so their kids could take a short walk to a public education, that school was off limits to my brother. Because he was legally blind, he was not allowed to attend the school at the corner where all of his friends from the neighborhood went to school. He had to go to a special school and be picked up by a short bus to ride to the other side of town. Far from anyone he knew, 
and leading to all sorts of ridicule from the neighborhood kids. A school that was for the developmentally disabled and those with psychological disorders that were being poorly diagnosed. So any disability, they would just throw you into the same building. They threw Madden with kids who had learning disabilities, assuming that if you are physically disabled, your mental capacity must also be diminished. Matt was forced to attend these schools from kindergarten through sixth grade. Upon turning 12, which is when you started going to what was called junior high in our school district, Matt was given one shot, one opportunity at being accepted into the general public school system. Otherwise, he would have to stay in that school system for the developmentally disabled until he graduated from high school. He was told that if he could hold a B average for his entire seventh grade year, only then could he remain in the public school system. If not, he was going back to the school where they stashed away all the kids who weren't normal. Not a passing grade, not a C average, a B average. He had to do better than the majority of kids who did not have any disability whatsoever, and he had to do it without being able to see the freaking chalkboard or have any kind of visual assistance where he could fairly compete with the other students. Think about it. Could you get a B average if you went to school, but you had to turn your back to the chalkboard? Could you get a B average? Hell no. Matt did. He told me he never worked so hard to get good grades in his life, even when he went to college and studied computer programming. Matt struggled to get into the public school system and to not have his physical disability treated as a mental disorder had a huge impact on his life and on my life. By the time I went to school, I was allowed to walk to the corner and go to the same elementary as all my friends from the neighborhood did. Sure, kids were mean to me because I was different and I would either beat them up or lose that fight and then have someone else beat the hell out of them. But because of my brother, I wasn't being bussed around across town to be taught next to kids who might be I don't know, schizophrenic. Not that there's anything wrong with being schizophrenic. It's just that a schizophrenic and someone with a visual disability probably do not need the exact same teaching strategies. My brother had to go to the same school where the kid across the street went, and he had severe physical and learning disabilities after being run over by a Salvation Army truck when he was four. Jesus, my childhood was a nightmare. Fast forward to the end of my experience in the East Detroit public school system. Three weeks prior to graduating from high school, I was called to the school counselor's office for an exit graduation interview. This was a person who I'd never met prior to that moment, never seen in my life. All I knew about the counselor was his name was Mr. Webb because that was his name. That was the name on his office door, the office door that was always closed. He asked me, what my plans were after high school. I told him I had none, and I hated school. I had no motivation, no inspiration, no reason to do well, and all I wanted was out. He leafed through some paperwork and said, Oh, did you know you are the first disabled person to go through our school system, kindergarten through 12th grade, all the way through our school, school system, and actually graduated? I told him I did not know that. This was new information to me. It was the kind of information that may have motivated me and inspired me to learn. Maybe. Who knows? But I was clueless. Sure, a disabled student, one year younger than me, thanked me for my achievement later that week. But I have no idea how they found out. All I knew is, no matter how horrible my education experience had been, I was lucky because I did not have to go through what my brother went through. And I didn't have to go through that nightmare because he did for me. On tomorrow's show, I will tell you how that disability rights pioneer, my oldest brother, was linked by the FBI to an alleged plot to assassinate President Gerald R. Ford. Jess, who is on tomorrow's Wednesday's live one-hour show at 10 a.m. Chicago time right here at thisishell.com. Has Alex actually booked somebody for ne- for tomorrow yet? We're still working on it. <laughs> Good to hear. Uh, what about Thursday? Yeah, we do have Thursday. Um, <laughs> Yay! On, on Thursday, uh, we're talking to Ray Levy-Uyeda. On her Baffler article, A Bleak Future for Water. Oh, that sounds like fun. 
can't wait to read about a bleak future for water. We'll also have more of your answers to this week's question from hell. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live stream, podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is Jess Lipka. Thanks to Jess for producing. Thanks to Raquel Varela, our guest, and Alex Jerry for all of the work he does behind the scenes and online. Staring into the abyss so you don't have to. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>